Hi, I'm Dubba Run, the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. John Robb is variously described as an author, music journalist, singer, commentator. He famously formed The Membranes, who were generally regarded as the loudest band ever, some say the loudest sound ever. Turns up on television on a fairly regular basis. He founded and edits the website Louder Than War, and he's also the frontman for punk band Goldblade. He knows an awful lot about music, and in short, he's seen a lot of changes in the music industry and all of the media and technology around the music industry. And to put it mildly, he has some thoughts about things. I turned on the John Robb Firehose at Expo North in Inverness. Buckle up. There was a list of titles on the projector behind you when you were doing your talk. Oh, God, I never saw any of them. Author... A journalist, broadcaster, musician, and it was this is a big long list. How do you describe what you do? Well, I'm, I'm actually really a musician. I mean, when I started, it was to be in a band, it was to make music and play music, and I still do that to this day. But what I found is, um, if you if you're really into music, you can do all the other things anyway. I mean, if you're always talk about music, so talking and writing about music aren't that far apart. Broadcasting your love of music and turning people onto things, describing stories, saying how things happened. Uh, being fascinated in all aspects of this whole 360 of pop culture, they're all the same thing. There's no difference, is there? You either play it or talk about it. And so to me, it seemed perfectly natural to do all of them. When I started doing it in the 80s, uh, you know, becoming a writer as well as a musician, people thought it was really odd. But now it's completely normal. You know, half the people on six music are also in bands. So it's, people don't think it's unusual for a, a person who plays music to be a broadcaster or whatever now. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, it was looked on as being a bit, oh, that's a bit weird. What are you doing that for? Yeah, different churches. Yeah, it, was, it seems to be very, very far apart. But now everything's blurred together. because Maybe the internet's done that because the internet is a media that nobody quite understands what it is. Is, is, is it writing? Is it filming? Is it playing music? No, why can't it just be all of them at the same time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the, the famous, I think it's Laurie Anderson line about uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. That's Frank Zappa. Was it Frank Zappa? Yeah. Okay, I heard that story wrong. But, but, I, but I, I don't really agree with them. I don't think writing about music is very difficult, you know, because you, you don't describe the pieces of sound, describing what they feel like. Because Frank Zappa was technically very, very gifted, but he never made any music that felt, had any feeling in it. So you probably find it very difficult to understand things like feeling and empathy or whatever, or community. And I think those things are quite important when you're writing about music. What does it make you feel like personally? What does it make everyone else in the room feel like personally? The sound of it, the sight of it, whatever. Even like we said before in there, what people are wearing, all those kind of aspects are really important in, in musical culture. Mm-hmm. But if you're just uh, somebody who plays guitar all day long, you probably don't understand any of those things, do you? Do you make a distinction between musical culture Culture and culture? No, I think they're all they're all part and parcel. Uh, to me, music's the glue that holds all kind of interesting culture together. You know, so it's. I mean, you could argue the same with painting and theatre, but I'm, I'm biased. I'm heavily involved in music, mm-hmm. so I find music. Um, it's a lot of time it can work classless. It can just it can it can permeate any aspect of society and culture. So, like, you you could be incredibly wealthy snob, and and you'll hear a song and it'll affect you in the same way. Somebody's got nothing, you know. And that's kind of like a lot of that is the power of music. It's if you just come seeping into this room now, your action would either be, oh God, turn that off, or it could be, go, oh, I'm so entranced by it, you know, the Pied Piper of Hamelin or something. Well, turn it off or turn it up. I turn think so. Up. A volume is well, kind of a really interesting. Vol- volume's, of volume's interesting, but I don't actually listen to things, unless I'm uh, recording or playing, I don't listen to stuff that is that loud, you know. Uh-huh. I don't think volume is the best effect you can play music. Obviously, you need it at a certain volume. 
about halfway up so you can get the punch out of it. But when you put it on full blast, it's hurting your ears. Like some people do, go, what? What is the point? Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> you, so don't need to, you don't need to play Motorhead full blast. They, they write great songs. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you're associated with a particular kind of music, though, more or less, or at least a particular territory of music. Is is that sort of these are your sort of uh, cultural familiarities, or is it because you know you write what you know, or is is it just sort of this is my lived experiences? I think I think it's a group in the time, and and a lot of people in my world were so heavily defined by punk rock. You know, it did change our lives. But it wasn't all that I ever listened to, you know. I mean, to this day, I listen to lots of different types of music. I listen to classical music, I listen to Indian music. It's, music's like an adventure, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff that I really like in punk, and I'll, I'll listen to punk now and then, but I don't spend all day in that rabbit hole. I mean, I, I do deliberately not listen to things that I've listened to a lot, you know. But every now and then, like, like I say about The Cure before, at Glastonbury, they came on, it's just like, it reminded me how much I love that band. But, then, but that's probably because they play one of the best gigs I've ever seen in my life, and I've seen a lot of gigs. So you do get taken back to that point of your own sort of creation. But um, I don't wallow in it for weeks on end. I mean, I mean, the advantage of being associated with a certain type of scene is that people will expect to go and talk about it in places. Mm. The disadvantage is that you're trapped in a little cage, aren't you? So and I, I don't want to be defined by somebody else's movements, because punk, as much as we were part of punk, it was, it was definitely 50 people in London and their scene. I know all those people now, they're all my friends and things, but I don't want somebody who's three years older than me who did something in 1976 to find what I think of my life and my culture. I have my own definition. I might have grown up in Blackpool, which is on the fringes of things. I might not have been in the centre of it, but I've, I've got a very, very strong sense of aesthetic and I know what I like and I know what I don't like. And I don't need somebody... Uh, telling me you shouldn't do this because it, it doesn't fit into my idea of what punk is. I go, well, I don't care. You know, I don't care what punk is. I'm not a punk. I'll be something else. You know, I don't, I don't need to be in the gang. I mean, I'm, I'm very much an individual person. I mean, there's certain aspects of I really like, but it doesn't mean I've got to be tied down with the other aspects I'm not interested in. Well, the idea of punk has become very kind of mythical and, and uh, almost commoditized in terms of this is sort of, this is what it stands for, this is the DIY ethic, this is the, you know, the sort of uh, three chords and a guitar and, and away you go, you form a band. It, stand, it stands for so many uh, opposite things. You know, for some people, uh, it was a very political movement. For some people, it wasn't. For some people, like a band like the Ramones, um, Two thirds of that band, three quarters of that band, would be voted for Donald Trump if they were still alive. I mean, it's it wasn't quite this super right old movement that people think, you know. Um, I mean, of course, the Clash were had a, a sort of a vague sort of left wing politic, but the Sex Pistols didn't really sing political songs. You know, their songs are more about a personal psychodrama of John Lydon, which makes them utterly fascinating. It's 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 a psychotic. It's almost like a nervous breakdown. When you listen to them, in a way, that could be political. It's not part of political. It's not manifesto political, but it reflects the feeling of the time. It felt, Britain felt claustrophobic. It felt like it was all going to blow up any minutes. And this is what it feels like now, oddly. You know, it's that same kind of feeling. It's a very claustrophobic place. There's no space in Britain. Yeah. Everybody's on top of everybody else and everybody's always really angry about something. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, it's like Brexit. No one cared about anything about Brexit. Five years ago, you, you say to the same people, do you want to be in or out of Europe? And we go, I don't know, I don't care. But now it's become this life-defining issue to split the country up forever. You know, in a hundred years' time, the country will still be split over it. You know, it's, it's two different Britons now it's trying to squash into one island. And that's, that's but punk, punk kind of caught that feeling about an older version of it, you know, that very claustrophobic 
um, pissed offness of Britain. Right. And I like the punk, but I was, if, if I had to define myself, I would define myself more as a, a post-punk person. Right. I'm part of that generation who was totally captivated by punk, tried to do their version of it and came out completely wrong and different. That's what post-punk was. We never learned to play music properly. The, the original punk bands, they all, they all did covers. They learned to play properly. They wrote verse, chorus, verse, chorus. They were great bands. I love that music. Mm-hmm. But the bit I'm fascinated in is the people that came afterwards could just play one riff and a bass for 10 minutes and just about trying to make a verse and a chorus and have no idea how to do it. Yeah. But somehow making that into music. And I've always been really interested in that. But to this day, I've been playing music for 40 odd years and I still can't play a cover version. I just make music in my own language, you know, and right. that was the definition of post-punk, really. Well, for me, uh, I missed punk, I reckon, by about two years and 12,000 miles, uh, growing up on the other side of the planet, but also it was everybody's older brother who had uh, the punk records. But what I appreciated from punk was this idea that nobody should feel like they shouldn't be allowed to play music. And I think that that, that mm. sort of, of, of all the lessons of punk, this idea that music is something that everybody can kind of participate in, I think is a really interesting... It's great thing. everyone participates in it, but it's, I don't want to listen to it all. No, of course. You know, I think it's brilliant if you can find something. Uh, when you play music with your friends, and it's a brilliant, and it's a brilliant bonding thing, and it's mm-hmm. an incredible feeling. But please don't send your very average demo tape to every single person on the planet. You, you know what? Not not because of me, but you're in the way of the genuine talents. The sort they're probably a bit more timid and disappear in the background. Mm-hmm. Somehow, if I want to hear those people, but as a writer to this day. It's, the, av- the avalanche of information just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Although I, I would argue yeah. that, that as, as a writer about music, it's probably your job to act as my filter. I, w- I would love to. There's 20 bands in the world, but there's 20,000. You know, you have to go through 18,000. Not bad bands. You know, they're, they're actually okay. Six out of ten uh-huh. bands. But I, I want to hear the genius. I want to hear the people change the culture, the shapeshifters, you know. Mm. How do I find those people? It's, it's a quest, isn't it? I do actively go out and try and, hit, try and find them. But um, when you've got all the people should be doing as a hobby in the way, mm-hmm. God, it's a mountain to climb. Yeah, I bet. I'm torn between the idea that, uh, that growing up in public is a great thing and, and between the idea that, uh, you know, maybe if you're not getting millions of followers on on, uh, on Facebook or whatever, that, you know, the first question you should ask yourself is, is my music any good? Oh, uh, well, see, the problem is there. Some of the most important groups of all time would have had 25 followers on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. There's maybe, I mean, I would love that. I'd probably love that band, um, and some the other person loved them ended up being in the biggest band in the world. You know, it's a way that, you know, in a sense, this is an exaggerated version, but like you 2 probably took about 60, 70% of their music off Joy Division, didn't they? And Joy Division caught them now because Joy Division, obviously, if Ian Curtis could somehow come back to life, will be playing in the same arenas as U2. But at the time, uh, Joy Division were playing to 60 people over around Britain and U2 were on the fast track to like stadiums. And that, that's an example of like something that wouldn't have been huge at that time be, being enormously influential, you know. Mm-hmm. But it can be the other way around, of course. You could be the Beatles, the Beatles, the most influential band of all time. They're the biggest band of all time, aren't they? So it's that being influential isn't necessarily uh, a snob thing. Oh, you've never heard of them, but I have. Right. Yeah, so, sure. You know, a lot of people like that with music, aren't they? But sometimes the biggest band in the world can be the best band in the world. Because you've been quite a champion of some of the biggest bands on the planet too. Yeah, I'm not a musical snob. I, I, I have no filter. I just like what I like. I don't I don't care if it's uncool. I mean, like we talked about Abra a minute ago. And I, I know Abra are actually quite cool to like now, but for years I loved Abra. Not, not the albums because they're a bit more cabaret but some of the singles are are fantastic emotional pieces of work you know really brilliant tunes in them just great really great songs aren't they the way they're made and that but at the same time I can listen to Swans you know we actually get more popular now but I mean I can listen I can listen to really heavy noise or total pop I I just see all this music I don't 
I don't filter it all out thinking, oh, I better not tell people like that because they might laugh at me. I don't really care what you think of my musical taste. I don't care what your listeners think. I don't care if you think I'm trying to be cool or uncool or anything. I like what I like. And, and as I'm getting older, I haven't got the time to waste to listen to stuff I don't like. I find it really interesting that you said that uh, one of your favourite gigs of all time was one that just, just happened. And mm. there's not something that sort of you're nostalgic about from 30 or 40 years ago, no. even though it's kind of like a heritage act. Um, but what is that relationship between nostalgia and music taste? Well, I, I understand nostalgia. I mean, I, I think um, there's a moment, I was talking about this with a friend of mine the other day, and I was saying to her, you know, The Oasis song Live Forever. It's, it's a great song, actually. This, this is great. This is really uncool to talk about Oasis and say, actually, they had some great moments. Mm-hmm. Live Forever, is, and it's, to me, it's very similar to Anarchy in the UK. They're, neither of them are political songs. Anarchy in the UK is not about anarchy. It's about when you're 16 and, you, and, you, and you're totally free form. You stay up for three nights. You do crazy stuff. You take loads of mad drugs. You, you cop off with really nice girls and all that. It's, it's, it's the best days of your life. You know, you know it at the time, don't you? You know that one day this is going to stop. You're going to have to grow up and be responsible and a bit bored, live in the suburbs. And all the way at the back of your mind is that little nibble, that three months, maybe if you're lucky, three years, total freedom when you were going to live forever or your life was anarchy in the UK. So when those groups reform, you go back to get that two hours. And for two hours, you got you get the same bunch of mates you hung out with, and they're all like older dudes now. Mm-hmm. You go down to this gig, and you go back to that moment of time when you felt so alive and so free. And to me, some of the greatest political music ever written um, creates a space for that to happen in. Isn't that the most powerful political statement you can make? Politics and music, and it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a left-leaning person, but I don't want manifestos from bands. I want people to say, you are totally free. This is the moment of time when, this, you know, you'll never feel as good as this. That's a powerful political statement, because really, in a perfect world, everybody should feel like that all the time, shouldn't they? I mean, it's, it's, it's important to have responsibilities, of course it is, yeah. but to have that feeling, that euphoric feeling that life is really fucking good, you know, and, and, and you could do what you like and it's a brilliant feeling. That's the power of great music and that's the power of nostalgia because it takes people back to that moment of time and that's why I can never sneer at it because I am really lucky because I just carried on. So that point in time when you had to settle down or be responsible, I just went past that and just, just carried on. <laughs> I still do the same as I did when I was 16. I write about music, I play music. Sometimes it's a struggle, sometimes it isn't, but I, I'm in that position where I am permanently in, in anarchy in the UK. It's interesting, I, I, I totally get the whole thing about uh, the greatest music of your life is whatever you're listening to at sort of 15, 16 years old, but I cannot personally think of anything worse than going back to being 16 years old again. No, no, so. I would, but at that point in time when you were 16, you had that freedom to do what you wanted. Yeah. You know, either way, but your mum and dad would maybe tell you off or whatever. Yeah. But it didn't matter. You didn't have to bother about having a house or a mortgage. You just went back to your mum and dad's house and just went up to your room, whatever. Yeah. That moment in time, when the, the first time you, the culture hits you full in the face, it's an amazing feeling, isn't it? It's, the music sounds amazing. Everything looks amazing. I don't want to be there. I, I don't want to wallow. I'm, I'm not saying I want to be in that point in time. I don't want to be in the punk rock revolution the whole of my life. Uh-huh. I'm here now. I'm, that's why that Georgie was going the day. Yes, they've been around 41 years, but they played like a fresh band, you know? So I don't think music gets any better or worse because it's 41 minutes old or 41 years old. You know, if it's great, it's great. At the same time, on the same day, I saw um, Fontaine's DC, Rising Band from Dublin, just had a top 10 album. Um, four years ago when they were about 17 I was going to put their record out I was on them right from the start I was first person outside the band to actually realise they're really good yeah. so it's a, it's a personal victory to see them being so massive now they're ostensibly a new band really 
really exciting. It was, fuck, that's great. Then the cure later on. It doesn't matter. I, 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 really, I mean, that's the great thing about Glastonbury. It's, you go see Janet Jackson and go, wow, to me, yeah. watching Janet Jackson's like a new band. And I never go to gigs like that normally, but I would go and watch Janet Jackson over going to see a band I could see in Manchester in a club anyway. So, um, it's just, so, so I'm, as a music head, I'm interested in all aspects of music, whether I like it or not. There's always something you go, wow, that's interesting, yeah. Do you uh, make a big deal of the connection between music and technology, like the, the things that yeah. people are playing and how they're recording it and, and what that means? Music's driven by lots of things. It's, it's, it's always by the surrounding culture. Bands are influenced by films, clothes, drugs, technology. Technology's so key. I was thinking about the Trump Goth book, one of the prime drivers of goth was new music technology that came in drum machines were very key in goth you know i mean suicide had used a drum machine in in the 70s but that was like wow i mean suicide was one of my favorite bands but um, nobody ever heard drum machine in something in a band like that it changed their sound so when bands like system started using drum machines it was quite an interesting move but then there's all the new guitar pedals coming in the new ways of recording the idea that you could start to use the, the early days of technology digital technology to make a studio into a, an instrument as well it was a lot easier martin hannett was very key to this inventing different types of reverbs new reverbs this is all the technology shaping the way music's made and shaping the possibilities of music in good ways and in bad ways as well but now um I mean, I was thinking up to about five years ago, uh, new iPhone was like a Beatles singles. In the 60s, you could actually make a very good argument that the 60s are punctuated by Beatles singles. So when the Beatles brought a single out, you can imagine being at school, everyone would go, have you heard the new Beatles single? It was a cultural moment. The way you liked them or not, you had to go, well, I better go listen to that because it's what they did, what are they up to now? And uh, Apple had that for the iPhones for a certain amount of time. Every new iPhone was on the news. Yeah. You know, so in a way, uh, an iPhone was a seven-inch single. You know, that was a modern technology version of pop culture, the pop cultural moment, what your phone was like. And that showed that technology had become pop culture in a way. But it feeds back into pop culture because loads of people, I mean, my last album, I wrote half it on my iPhone in GarageBand with my headphones on, sat on trains and planes and then transpose it back into guitar, drums, bass, you know. So the technology has changed the way you can write because you never forget an idea because you just get your phone out and write it all, don't you? And then you start being able to write classical music because you can write it on your phone. I, I can't play a violin, but I can, I, can, I can actually play it on an iPhone by moving my fingers around. So I've written... Um, sort of neoclassical tracks for other people. Just to, basically, I don't even do it with my iPad, I actually do the iPhone, which is two fingers playing complex string parts. So technology changes the way people can make music, create music, it's the way you can propagate music, move it around the world, you know, uh, Spotify, you know, stuff like that, you know, and YouTube. And so people in America can hear your music. You don't have to send them albums, which, which you couldn't afford to do anymore. Mm. You just send them files or you just say, check out our Spotify page. So it's, it's making a massive... I mean, the internet's brilliant and it's also a total disaster, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's a great way of spreading good culture around, but it's also a, a very good way for neo-Nazis to spread their culture around. It's also a very good way to polarise every single argument on this planet. Whereas 20 years ago, people sit in a pub and they'd argue and they'd go home as mates, but now people go, it's black and it's white. That's, that's your Twitter or Facebook debate, isn't it? I don't agree with you. Well, I, I agree with you even less. Bah, 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 bah. And I'll tell you one thing, you, I guarantee you, you will never seen on Facebook where somebody will say, oh, yes, you have a point. I've just changed my mind. <laughs> well, this is why I like podcasts so much because it's dialogue and you get people each week coming back and having longer conversations. There's long-form journalism online. It's not just tweets. And I like long-form journalism. I, I like long articles. I mean, I write long articles. I mean, there's a power and a skill to write the short thing. There's a power and a skill. to, to if you interview, I do interviews with people and they last about an hour 
how we film them, but we always try and dig out one killer quote, you know, it sums the whole thing up, and that's difficult, isn't it? Because it's, it's hard to get the one thing that escapulates the whole, the whole form, but there is there's definitely space on the internet for long form. Not everybody's always zippy and bored and flicking from one thing to another. Yeah. Yeah. When did the light bulb go on for you? I mean, I, I imagine you being really super into music when you were 16, but was it 10? Was it five? Was it, you know, oh, what were you like as a kid? Yeah, I mean, see, that's always one of my favourite questions. I always ask people that because there's, there's an awful moment, isn't there? Yeah. I probably had a few. I remember uh, Christmas 1971 uh, on the BBC, and they used to do this every year. They, they always show Beatles film because the Beatles were very smart. They managed to make everything they did tie into Christmas. So they always put a single out just before Christmas. They did uh, Christmas messages for yeah, their fan club records, didn't they're they? They're great. Those records are really psychedelic by 66. They yeah. did some pretty weird cut-up stuff going on. Yeah. So every Christmas, the BBC would show Beatles films. So we watch Hard Day's Night thinking, that looks amazing. That's the life you want to lead. I was about 10 then. Yeah. So I thought, who is this band? I wonder, where, I wonder what they're doing next. I had no idea they'd already split up <laughs> because, because there's no internet then. You're in a bubble, weren't you? Uh-huh. And then we start watching, well, I must get more of this stuff. Well, what is it? And then start watching Top of the Pops. There's a program with loads of pop bands on it. Wow, this is amazing. Because uh, pop culture was not like it is. You know, pop culture is everywhere now. In every newspaper, every magazine, every TV program. Although they don't have TV programs specifically about music, music is in every program. Yeah. So pop culture is everywhere, nowhere, all at once. But then it was Top of the Pops, 20 million views, start watching it, and it's glam rock, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, of course, I love Bowie and Bowler, but I loved all glam rock, you know. I, I love Sweet and Mud and Slade and um, Sparks and Wizard, and all the bands that quite often you, you're not that cool to like, but make great records. It was all singles. I didn't even know they were putting albums out. A lot of them didn't put out very good albums either, you know. But the singles culture was amazing. Slade were quite good at Christmas too, weren't they? Oh, yeah, well, they, well they, the Slade's model was based on the Beatles, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Slade's basically the Beatles, if John Lennon hadn't sort of gone, disappeared with Yoko and gone all soppy, you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean Noddy Holder can sing like John Lennon. He's got a really, really great voice, hasn't he? So that, I think for a lot of us, that's what we, if the Beatles, we find out the Beatles are gone and we all like John Lennon, we thought Slade will do because this is what the Beatles would have sound like in our heads. The Brummy Beatles, I really like. <laughs> <laughs> They're using all the same effects, ADT, a little bit of slap back on the p- piano when you use the piano. And a great songwriter. I know Noddy Holden it really well, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So um, you're watching TV. Uh, yes, the album is glam rock. Love glam, glam rock. rock. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. Does, does liking the music automatically make you interested in the biographies? Um, no, I had no interest in the people, really. Because then you couldn't find anything about them. I don't even know the people. There's a few books. I remember somebody got me a book on the Beatles in about 76. It's amazing. There's somebody written a book or a band. But like now, it's, it's just like 3,000 books on the Beatles. I mean, everything's been written about. It's insane. Yeah. But then nobody... I, mean, I was starting to buy the newspapers at the same time because I want to read about this kind of stuff. But it's, they, and I would buy them mostly by one or two papers a week because they didn't have a lot of money. But they would have like interviews of bands I'd never heard of. Like interviews like... Uh, a Welsh rock band called Man. I was thinking, God, what's this? I never heard these. These haven't been on top of the pops. Mm-hmm. Which ones? David Bowie's not on these, is he? <laughs> it was like, you know, like, because it was so naive, the culture. So you read these things, you'll find out it's actually another world underneath the one you knew about. So smaller bands just playing in colleges up and down the country than bands you never heard of from the 60s or whatever. The Beach Boys. I mean, no one ever heard the Beach Boys in, in, mm. glam, in the glam era of my age. You know, you know when, people, when people talk about that canon, it makes me laugh because it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't there then. You know, it wasn't, you wouldn't even know about these bands. Even the really cool kids who are now pretending, oh yeah, 1973, I love the Velvet Underground. No, you didn't. Yeah, yeah I mean, like I, 40 I, people in the world bought that record. <laughs> you know, know what I mean? <laughs> I really like the, I mean, I loved their Walk on Wild Side by Lou Reed. I thought it was an ace record, but mm. I had no idea. 
is in the Velvet Underground. I didn't know Roxy Music were a cool band. I just thought they were great bands. Mm. And to me, Roxy Music and Muds were the same. They're just great bands that I liked. I didn't realise that one was a laughable and one was like really cool. It was just me. I, I was the only person really into music. I was at school. And there's the people who kind of paid lip service to it. You know, Bowie put a single out, people were excited. But it wasn't like... Um, it, it wasn't a dominant culture. The dominant culture was actually football. You know, that's what everybody's into. Northern Souls in the background, because we lived in Blackpool, like Stuart was saying before. Yeah. Blackpool's one of the main Northern Soul towns, and other kids had been to glam rock, and a few metalheads into Zeppelin and Sabbath, and that was it. But it wasn't like... And if you listen to the chart countdown on Tuesdays on, on the Transistor Radio while we're all playing football, but it wasn't like... Um, it wasn't like the, the, the culture that everybody hooked everything around, you know. It, people, if, you, if you met somebody you never met before, you're more likely to talk about football than, than music, so it's a bit boring. But weirdly, I think that uh, pop music, and, and particularly pop music journalism, gave people the permission to be smart about popular culture. Of course, yes. I, I saw music as my education. I didn't see it as uh, de-education. I didn't see music as something that made me more thick. I actually, because I was already re- I already read a lot, so I was fascinated with the world, but I didn't hear anybody talking about it. You know, most people you see in TV, or which is the other big media, actually probably was the biggest medium, were, were they're experts in their fields, but there's other stuff going on there, and you, didn't, you couldn't hear about it, but when you read interviews of people like David Bowie or whatever, do you think, well, these people are fascinated. They know stuff. Now, I was so naive. I thought these people had the wisdom. I thought, I, I still, and I, I knew, I heard about the counterculture by 75. I thought, well, it's a, there's a whole other way of living out there. There isn't the way li- that, that we're living. The, you know, I mean, all those themes are so commonplace now. The world is going to hell and, and we're going to poison the world, blah, blah, blah. I was, all, I was into all this stuff in 75. I was reading about it mm. and that. But the only people you ever saw talk about it was people in pop culture. It's a very underground pop culture thing to be interested in. Yeah. And I was fascinated with all those themes. Uh, and probably in quite a dark, negative kind of way, which maybe I was primed for punk rock. I mean, when punk rock turned up, it was like, whoa, this is it. Mm. These, this is, this, these are my people. Punk rock was basically loads of nerdy, lonely kids up and down the country who, who felt out of step with everybody at school. You know, well, I mean, no one else at school was thinking what I was thinking, not because I was dead clever or anything, just because I got fascinated in it. And when the, the punk bands came along and they started doing interviews, you're thinking, whoa, this is, what, this is the stuff I'm thinking. I think the world is fucked. I think everything is crazy. Blah, 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 blah. And I could see it all getting talked about in interviews, The Clash and The Pistols, and even bands like uncool bands like Stranglers, who I totally adore, will talk about all these, this other stuff. And I was thinking, you know, people actually do talk about the stuff. It's not just me. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and art, literature, politics, all these things started. Oh, there was a door open. The whole lot came in. Bang! All at once. And yeah. whether, whether it was all made up or not, because... What I found out years later was that most of these people either didn't really believe in it or it was just a phase for them, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But for me, it was, it was a journey. But know? it was the writers. And this is the thing that, that I really want to get to. It was the writers... Created the narrative. Pop, they created this narrative, but they, yeah. they invested all of their intellect and knowledge into the narrative about the pop music. So the culture was kind of created. Maybe, maybe like, they got... Joe Strum was obviously a very clever, quite fucked up, fascinating character. Uh-huh. And they just added some stuff on top of that. You know, then he goes, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to go with that. So it kind of, it's a self-fulfilling whirlpool, isn't it? You keep chucking things in and it keeps changing colour. So I think that's what it probably was. I mean, John Lydon, at that time, was obviously very, very smart, self-educated, great take in the world. 
and when he's meeting these people from different, I mean, a lot of the writers are quite middle class, been to university, read a lot of books. Mm-hmm. They're chucking ideas into these unformed minds, but these these unformed minds are smart. These are smarter people, yeah. and they pick they're, they're understanding these ideas within two sentences, and then make them regurgitating it back out in a way that we can understand them. And that was part of the process. One is a two it was a two way process, wasn't it? It was in fact three way. It was it was the performers, the writers, and the audience. The audience was in there as well. Mm-hmm. You know the expectations of the audience. People were having to live up to it, weren't they? So when the audience is saying, "Go on, tell me something interesting," you had to think of something interesting, I guess, didn't you? Yeah, and and that level of sort of fandom, which is about this kind of almost kind of uh, train spottery, you know, fact collector. That 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 was also created by the music press. In order to, in order yeah, to, I mean. I'm a, I'm a bloke. I can remember facts, but I don't. I don't define music on facts. I don't. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not. I mean, I, I like facts, but but I like emotions more. I like mm-hmm. emotional writing. I like the feeling of things. You know, I think. Um, that, I mean, punk was incredibly emotional. When you get old people talk about punk now, old dudes my age, they get very misty-eyed. It's quite interesting to watch. You know, uh, people talk about the clash of Joe Strummer, and it's a very emotional subject because yeah. he meant so much to so many people. And when he died, people were in tears, you know. And it's—I never seen that before in punk. It was—it was powerful, you know. So I was thinking this the other day because a lot of friends of mine are dying. You know, everyone's getting older. People are dropping off from cancer here and there. And I, was, I wrote a little thing about a friend of ours, this woman who died in Manchester. And was, I was just saying, you know, it's sad and that. And I did a little thing about life. I was thinking, punk rock used to be a celebration of life, live forever. And in the UK, that moment when you're free, life's gonna last forever. And now punk rock is uh, everyone's epitaph. You go to your funeral. They play the punk classics, don't they? And it's tainted with this sadness now, isn't it? It's 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 the uh, it's it's the end of our lives music, isn't it now? Where it used to be the beginning of our lives, and it just seemed like two weeks ago in between. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> that feels like a book that. But needs I'm not to be scared of death. Yeah. And bring it on, you know. I'm not scared of getting old. I'm sixty in two years. But bring it on. I'm not. It doesn't scare me. But it's it's interesting that your culture shifts slightly to match that kind of feeling, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, interesting, and, and and it feels like that that's the journalism that I, I guess that this sort of generation can do now is growing old with uh, a fan, you know, growing old disgracefully as the, as the <laughs> yeah. As the same yeah goes. You find that as you when your writers get older, you can embrace a lot of emotions you probably couldn't embrace when you were younger. You don't, you're not scared. Or saying stuff makes you feel something, you know. Was when you're in your twenties, especially you're a man from the north of England. You never admit to anything emotional. That's what. Yeah, that's why the bands North England had so many great bands because the bands like Joy Division could articulate what people felt like. But it was in a band. But if you went to the pub and said all that, people go, "Wow, what are you going on about? Yeah, Shut yeah. up!" But if it's a band, people go, "Okay, that's that's what I feel. I feel melancholic. I feel depressed. I feel sad. You know, but I can." He's singing it for me. I, you know, I'm embracing it. Is that part of the power of music? The the, the sort of uh, being able to express emotion where the words run out. Of course, yeah. The, the words are almost incidental. I mean, actually, a lot of Joy Division words don't sing about the topics that you think Joy Division sing about. Some of them are about nicked out of um, war books, aren't they, and stuff, you know. But it's the way he sings them. He can sing anything. You sing the phone book and you go, I know what he's feeling. And then the music it was perfection in that band. Every instrument's matching the mood, even the drums. The dislocated drumming's matching the dislocated emotions, isn't it? And, and I, they didn't even know they were doing it. They were standing in a room playing and it, to this day Peter Hook will go I don't know where it came from and he doesn't he just stands there and they're all uh, egging each other along but uh, in the subconscious they're just playing and you don't even know what everyone else feels you, no, no, one, no one talks about it mm-hmm. you're just playing and it just kind of meets in the middle the doors talked about this communal mind it's a powerful thing isn't it 
when you're in a band and you're playing and everyone clicks, God, it's magical. Is that still happening? Is it, I mean, is it something that 16-year-olds now have access to? Of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, music culture didn't stop because you got to 27. There's as many, go see Fontaine's DC. It's so intense, you know, that guy is on that trip. I hope he's okay. He's a very intense young man. And I hope he'll be all right in the end. You know, I don't like to see people destroy themselves in music. I saw, I saw what happened to Kurt Cobain almost firsthand. You know, mm. several other people in my life have seen it happen to him. Even normal, you know, normal heads you grew up with, like people gone too far, suicide, drugs and messed them up. There's a dark side to pop culture as well, isn't there? Yeah, and there's a lot of people complicit in that, not just uh, people. Well, yeah, you making know. a, you know, Felton uh, Ground's Heroin, great song. But does it glamorise heroin? Yes, it does, because I know people got to heroin off the, off the back of that song. You know, so it's... This, but is it their fault? Because an artist should never apologise, you know. Do you just do your art. I mean, no matter how much you think Morris is a complete fucking idiot for every interview he does these days, he should never have to apologise. That's his art. His art is talking complete rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> In a way. But you know what? There's too many people apologise for everything now. You know, people go, oh my God, it's the, the Twitter gang have got me. They should go, what's it got to do with you? You know, so, and that's... that. Uh, that defiance in art is one thing I like. And I, I, most artists are idiots. Most artists talk pretty crap. But the, we need we need jesters in society, like John and Yoko. Well, that was their thing, wasn't it? Like John Lennon said, we, you, we're the clowns. You can laugh at us, but we've got a message, you know. And mm. that's what people, people are too scared to be clowns now. I'm not embracing um, Morrissey, what Morrissey says. I'm embracing the right of him to say it. But I'm also embracing my right to say, Morrissey, you're talking bollocks, but I'm not going to stop you doing it. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, who did you look to when you were coming out? Was there somebody you thought that's what I want to be when I grow up? I always wanted to be me, but um, uh, but the band, the bands, the bands were our key cultural informers. You know, I loved all the bands, but I didn't want to be any of those bands because, of course, the most important tenet of punk is to be yourself, isn't it? Mm. I mean, you're completely missing the point if you just want to be some bloke out of the Clash or or the Pistols or whatever. Well, I, I'm a northerner. I come from the north of England. I come from a different space. You know, I loved all that music. But they came from London, it was different. You know, they, they grew up in a multicultural city. I, mean, I grew up in a city or a town where everyone was white. There's one black kid in my school. It was hideous. It should have been... When I first went into Manchester, I loved it instantly because that's my version of England. Where I am a patriotic person. I'm patriotic about Manchester or London, those kind of multicultural cities where everybody actually gets on. Mm. It's my, not my, I, my version of patriotism is Nigel Farage's worst nightmare. <laughs> you know, my, my idea of an English person is it could be, it could be a Muslim. I go, when I go to the gym, there's only about four white people in the gym and nobody ever notices till I point it out. Everyone goes, oh God, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we think it's, they, they, we have a lot in common. We all train together. They all like football, some music and that. And I, I think that's, to me, that's a, a brilliant vision of a country. Everyone feels really British, but we're all from different places. That, that's something to be patriotic about. We get on, you know, it's, no matter what they'll tell you mm. in the Daily Mail or in the papers or all the media, we actually all get on pretty well out here, you know. It's not, it's only people like Farage and all the shit stirs. You know, you cut multicultural society never works. So get, well, fucking come to Manchester. It works perfectly. <laughs> if you said to people in Manchester, uh, you live in a multicultural society, they go, do we? I never, I never thought about it. Because you don't think about it, you just walk down the street. It's only when you walk down the street and think, God, yeah, 
loads of Chinese people, loads of Asian people. Wow, that's really cool, isn't it? Mm. But normally you walk down the street and people go, all right, all right, mate, because that's the north, isn't it? All right, mate, how's it going? You just say hello to everyone. Uh-huh. <laughs> you seem in a, in a good place, as you said, and you seem like there's uh, come from this culture of uh, no apologies and, and just live life and, and pretty much full on at, at full speed. There, to be human, there must be something that you regret or that you wish you hadn't done or you wish you hadn't thought of. Is there anything along the way you thought... That that was a mistake, or I, I wish I, you know, that was kind of my big regret of the of no, the no, career. No, not really anything massive, no. But there's, there's all little ones, and I mean, you always make mistakes. I mean, you make mistakes every day, don't you? I mean, you make sort of mistakes with what you're doing musically. Yeah, you make, you get a chance. I know there's something very perverse about growing up punk. That every opportunity you got, you kind of do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> it's only the last few years. Is that so. good advice? No, it's rubbish advice. Okay. You should follow your own talent. Yeah, you know. Um, so in the last few years, I actually discovered I'm, I'm actually quite melodic. I mean, that would have been like the culture I grew up in would be uh, a criticism to be melodic. Mm-hmm. So we would write really melodic songs and then pile loads of noise on top of them, almost hiding our melodic, melodic skills, you know. Right. It's only the current arm put out two weeks ago and it's gone around the world and people go, there's been some great reviews of it because people love the album now. People are going, where, 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 where's these tunes all come from? <laughs> we all, where, where, why, why, have you, why, why, after all these years, you finally got round to actually admitting you could write pretty good melodies? You've just stopped hiding them. <laughs> yeah, we stopped hiding them. Well, and we found a way of making it where it wasn't watered down, though. We kept the edge of the music, and mm-hmm. it's, it's quite intense, but it's melodic as well. So, it's, so, so maybe I regret that, you know, maybe it was just, maybe it's, well, of course it's too late, isn't it? But if we'd done it when I was 20, I would have had the opportunity. But we never made music for money, you know. I mean, I, I have no problem with people making music for money because I hate that idea that only musicians get criticised for getting paid, you know. Mm. Everyone should get paid for what they do, if, they, if it's possible. So I don't, and the term sellout means nothing. It's just, you know, it's, it's, I know how it's, I've been in bands for years. It's tough being a musician, you know. You don't get paid. You, you're struggling all the time. So if I hear that, I don't know, some really cool band has sold on their songs off to an advert in Japan, I go, good luck to them. Mm. There's 30 grand. They can survive for two more years. Fix you know, the van. That's sort of yeah, you know what? You know, if, if you don't want them to make the adverts, why don't you pay for their records instead of just nicking them off the internet? <laughs> <laughs> do you think the band actually wants to be on a Toyota advert? I don't think so. Mm. But do you think that band want to sit in a mouldy bedsit with no money for days on end? I don't think so either. Sure, sure. I mean, so, it's always been like that. Michelangelo had to get champions to pay him to paint roofs. Leonardo da Vinci is not even his real name. That means Leonardo of the da Vinci's, da Vinci's or whatever. They were the people paying for him to be a genius. I mean, it's always been like that. Artists, you don't earn money for art. You have to get some rich person to look after you, don't you? <laughs> if you can't marry one, you have to find one somewhere else. And did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> so the next thing is a book, uh, another book, uh, and it's about goth. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's a I like it's called the art of darkness. So dark wave and all. It's that. all in there. It's a huge subject, but it's it's many more on the darker side of post punk. So it's quite a wide remit. I start with the fall of Rome in four ten when the Visigoths sacked Rome, the Western Goths, mm-hmm. and I end with Instagram influencers. You get all these women now, place like Russia, Sweden, standing in the forest having their picture taken. They look fantastic. You know, deer's antlers on. There's a lot of back to nature, goth mixture thing. Yeah. And what's really fascinating is they're, they're very goth influenced, but none of them actually like any music, which I, which I don't think is wrong or right. I don't care. You know, it's, but it's interesting as an observation that the culture is stronger image wise eventually than the music. The music's almost secondary huh. to, to the fascination of, of the weirdness of it, you know. Yeah. The darker side of life. 
Yeah, so in between, I do, uh, you know, the Gothic cathedrals, Gothic arts, Romanticism, Baudelaire, uh, the writers, you know, then you go through uh, people, Alistair Crowley, all this. God, it was, it was, once you start, you go, oh, my God, this is a can of worms. This is a deep a rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. it's a rabbit hole goes off. The book's 400,000 words at the moment. Wow. And we're just trying to chisel it down to 250 so the, um, the publisher doesn't have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> but this goes back to my point about the, the writing about music becomes writing about art and politics and architecture. It's Thing. Yeah, I said that's a publisher because they, they said, Can you not take the first third of the book out? I said, What? Without the Gothic cathedrals, you don't have the word Gothic. Without the Visigoths sacking Rome, you know, there's a line here. Yeah. And it's quite a fascinating line. And also, I liked all the, the idea that Europe has always had a fascination of the dark. It's, it's inclement, it's, it's melancholic, the weather's damp. And all the folk tales, you know, like uh, in Scandinavia, you know, the weird. The trolls and all the things that live up the mountains, weird little bear things, whatever. That yeah. feeds into the darkness, the flickering of the shadows. The Europe is all, it was wooded, it's a deep forest. And walking through a forest without uh, a lantern in the 15th century would have been scary. Imagination running riots, mm. thinking dark thoughts. You know, that's all, it's all in there. It's all part of the DNA. I don't think Sister Mercy went rehearsing and said, let's write a song that captures 15th century European forest storytelling <laughs> culture. But th those flickering shadows, have always been resonant in our culture, and there's a fascination with it as well, isn't there? For horror stories, horror films. I mean, um, the Brothers Grimm, God, their stories are really grim, aren't they? You know, yeah. they're not, you think they, they give this stuff to children. You know, she was dancing around, and she was like a dancer, ballet dancer, then they chopped her feet off. The end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I've heard that one. Well, you should go read them. I reread them all. I was thinking, wow, these, these are really weird stories. Like, we, you know, um, what weird old man appears in the forest and, and then he steals all the children away. You think, mm. well, what's all that about? It's, they're really odd, odd stories. So when you're an old man one day, I so am now. 20, 20 years in the future. 58, 58 is actually old. I'm not far yeah. off you. So, but sitting up with your, your, your feet and your slippers, pipe, whatever it is you're, you're going to be doing, what, what are you going to sort of, how are you going to spend that time? What's, uh, what's going to be sort of well, the main thing? This feature? is how I'm going to try and do it. I'm going to just do it. I'm just going to live this fast right all the way to the end. I'm not going to be sitting there with pipe and slippers. Hopefully, if I'm lucky, I'll still be getting whizzed around, do stuff. Yeah, I want to be like, you know, William Burroughs carried on to the end, didn't he? Yeah. Alan Ginsberg, those heads, they didn't stop. They got to the 80s and they were just still doing it. Why, why would you stop? Yeah. Well, an artist doesn't retire, do they? You know, this is, this, is, this is an end game. I might have a bit more wisdom or something, but I mean, maybe you have to slow down slightly. Maybe you can't walk, but your mind, if, if you're lucky, it's still going to be really fast, isn't it? If not this, what would it have been? Oh, the, there is no other way. It could only be this. I mean, from the age of 10, I was obsessed with pop culture. I knew it. I mean, you subconsciously know that's the only way out, isn't it? I, I never wanted a job. When they did a survey at school about, um, they asked you 100 questions, sign what sort of job would fit you. I got naught out of 100, and they said they'd never seen anybody with <laughs> such a negative career ambition. I don't do this as a career. I don't I have no interest in a career. I'm interested in the very moment that I'm in, and that, and that, that was then. And the pop culture was great that because pop culture is also about the moments, wasn't it? So I was, I was, I was tuned into pop culture without even realizing it. I couldn't have done anything else. I mean, I'm fascinated with lots of stuff. I'm fascinated with science. I'm fascinated with nature. I'm fascinated with the, the universe. I mean, I made records about that stuff. I know a lot about that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm fascinated by stone circles and history and, and cities and. All those kind of things, I'm deeply, in a lot of ways, probably more fascinated than uh, musical culture. But musical culture is, is a perfect conduit for those interests as well. And a way to express them. I guess. Yeah, yeah, completely, yeah, yeah because um, you could become an expert in them, 
Because they, you know the great thing about that empowerment, punk empowerment, and everything. Uh-huh. You know, I, I can actually—I've I've met the head of CERN, and I can—I I can hold him pretty well in a conversation for two hours about the universe. And obviously, he knows more stuff than me, mm-hmm. but he didn't lose me in the conversation because I knew enough to keep. I didn't go, oh my god, let's do my head in. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? There's no wedge to the universe. But for me, I was going, well, that kind of makes sense. So, um, so, so I ha- it gave me no fear, punk. That was the brilliance of it. And it seems to have done you well. You look incredibly healthy. You're I don't do the rock energy. and roll lifestyle. See, the, the, one of the mistakes of rock and roll is people think you have to do the lifestyle. I, I, I don't. I don't do no drugs. I'm vegan. I mean, that's a lot of people. A lot of people go, well, that's not very punk. I go, well, it is. I mean, most people I know. At this stage of the game, especially younger people, yeah. I like that now. I mean, I'm interested in extremes and not political extremes. I'm interested in lifestyle extremes. I'm interested in the idea that to have energy, you don't need to take loads of speed. <laughs> you know, you don't have to. I mean, I've done all that stuff when I was younger, mm. but like now, I'm interested in. And what's the best way to maintain your mind, body, and soul? In it, like to go as fast as you possibly can without poisoning yourself. You know, and you know what? It's actually not poisoning yourself. <laughs> That's what works. People go, "What drugs do you take?" Why come you so fast all the time? Because I don't take any drugs. That's why I'm fast all the time. Yeah. If you do coke, you get 10 minutes, then, then you're knackered for about an hour until you find some more coke. If you, if you actually, I mean, I had four hours sleep last night. Because I drink water, a little, tea's my only vice. I need the caffeine just to keep chipping along a little bit. But I eat, I eat well, I don't eat shit, you know. If you eat shit, you become slow, you know. I mean, I'm interested also, if people give me information, I meet a dietitian, I go, what's the latest? What's the latest thing that works really well, you know? Because mm. I want to maintain it. I want to get to 90 and still be on it, buzzing, feeling good. I appreciate stuff as well. You walk down the street and I look at the trees, the tops of trees, the tops of the buildings. Walking down here, it's amazing. I'm looking at the river, you know, seeing what's in the river. I don't walk around with my eyes shut, you know. Yeah. Everything's amazing. You know, if a ladybird lands on your hand, you look at it and you go, wow, what amazing construction, you know. Stuff like that is good for the soul, it's good for the mind, isn't it? You know, I'm not locked into music. I mean, I love music, but I'm not just locked into thinking about it and that's the only thing in the world and that. John, I feel like I've been on a roller coaster. I really appreciate your time. <laughs> Thanks for yours. Yeah. That's punk orator and professional out loud thinker John Robb, and that's the MTF podcast. If you enjoyed, please like, share, rate, review, and we'll catch you next week. Have a great one. Cheers. 